because loneliness is a very human experience. It's the experience of, and uh, the signal rather, that our body sends us when we're, we're missing something that we desperately need for survival, and that's human connection. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to South Asian Stories. This is a special one, our 25th episode. Thank you so much for listening and being part of this journey. And I could not be more thrilled to bring on one of my personal heroes, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Dr. Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the U.S. between 2014 and 2017. As the Vice Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission's Corps, he commanded a uniformed service of 6,600 public health officers globally. During his tenure, Dr. Murthy launched the Turn the Tide campaign, catalyzing a movement amongst health professionals to address the nation's opioid crisis. He also issued the first Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health, calling for expanded access to prevention and treatment for the addiction to, to be recognized as a chronic illness, not a character flaw. In 2017, Dr. Murthy focused his attention on chronic stress and loneliness as prevalent problems that have profound implications for health, productivity, and happiness. He has co-founded a number of organizations, Visions, an HIV-AIDS education program in India, Swasthya, a community health partnership in rural India training women as health providers and educators, as well as the software company Trial Networks and the grassroots physicians organization Doctors for America. Since leaving government service, Dr. Murthy has continued to focus on loneliness and social connection. His book, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World was just published this spring. In this conversation, we discuss a ton, including Dr. Murthy's tumultuous journey to be confirmed as U.S. Surgeon General and how he specifically dealt with setbacks. The simple steps of just picking up the phone to inspire connection with a friend or loved one, as finally the letter he mailed to U.S. doctors to recognize their service as one of his most proudest accomplishments as U.S. Surgeon General. This interview was one of my favorites to record. It honestly was a therapy session for me. So please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Dr. Vivek Murthy. Dr. Murthy, welcome to South Asian Stories. Thank you so much, Samir. It's good to be with you today. Uh, as I was mentioning right before we uh, jumped in and start recording, Dr. Murthy is one of my absolute heroes. And when I was like following him through the uh, Obama administration and his work in the Surgeon General, I just could not be more thrilled to have you on the podcast. Oh, well, that's so nice of you. You're making me blush. If, if brown men can blush, <laughs> that's right. I think I am. So, <laughs> um, so I'd love to start way at the beginning, Dr. Murthy. And can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and how Indian or South Asian your family was? Sure. So I grew up in Miami, Florida. My parents are originally from South India. My mother grew up in Bangalore although her family is originally from Andhra Pradesh. And my father uh, grew up in a small village several hours outside of Bangalore. And they left India in the early 1970s. They came to England first. They lived there for a number of years. And they were in Newfoundland. And then ultimately, they ended up in Miami, Florida, which is where I was largely raised, and my sister, who's a year older to me. You know, growing up, we, we didn't have many connections here in the United States. We didn't... Um, have a lot of family that was here. In fact, I think we had one relative who lived uh, quite far away, so we never really saw them. And it was a strange new world for us. But what was really amazing uh, to me, uh, increasingly so as I reflect on my own childhood and look back on it now with some distance, is just how incredibly tight-knit uh, my family was. And we really took care of each other. We stuck by each other. Um, and, you know, we... In times are hard. You know, my, my parents, you know, early on, I remember we uh, we were in this very bad car accident, actually, when I was, gosh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. And it was a really scary time because 
Um, my mother hurt her arm um, and had a pretty large gash on it, which required uh, surgical repair. My sister was knocked unconscious, and there was real concern that she may have had some internal bleeding, and so she actually ended up having to have um, what's called an exploratory laparotomy, where they basically open your stomach and look to see if there's anything uh, anything wrong. And it was at a time when we financially were not in the best place either. You know, we were making by uh, getting by on my dad's, uh, you know, uh, you know, salary from the University of Miami, mm-hmm. and uh, he had just though taken the leap to start his own medical practice, which required using a lot of all the savings they had and putting it into this uh, this new venture. And that's time sticks out to me both because of how scary it was, but because I just remember how even more tightly uh, we we be, you know became bonded and we spent those nights at the hospital you know taking care of my sister we um we I always came home from school knowing that uh things were going to be okay uh because I had my sister and my parents and you know as we were also raised in a I would say a very south asian uh, type of upbringing um my mother from the earliest of ages uh, introduced us to uh, you know, Hindu traditions and to meditation. Um, that was an important part of our, our process growing up. We spent time with other uh, South Asian families. We spent <clears throat> a fair amount of time in doing in, in various types of cultural activities, whether it was uh, plays and other reenactments, you know, that we would do with the temple group or whether it was music, where my sister was a classical music singer and Carnatic music. And wow. I played the Murdangam, which is a, a, a percussion instrument. Uh, used in uh, in Carnatic music, and so we actually performed together a lot. So uh, I would say that our Indian identity was very strong, and it was very clear, and uh, and it was something interesting that I was very proud of. Uh, I didn't necessarily think it made me better than anyone else, but I felt that you know it was an identity that I was, and a culture that I was proud to to be a part of. Um, but I did, you know, we did encounter though a fair amount of discrimination and racism from time to time, you know, growing up from people who, you know, just didn't understand, you know, our background or thought that I had a funny name or, you know, thought that it was weird that our skin looked the way it did, you know, who knows what it was. Sure. Um, but amidst all of that, I was sort of clear that, uh, our, our cultural identity, our spiritual identity was, was, was strong and one of the most important parts of my upbringing. That's amazing. And, you know, I had a similar experience where like, when I realized that not other people have like dance performances to go to, the garbas to go to, like places to, and then, you know, we, we went to Chimai Mission growing up and learning about Hindu culture. And then when I went to school, it's like, oh wait, not everyone has that. And that's something that I'm uniquely, you know, proud of and grateful to have and, and something that some people may not have. And, and I started to lean into that more. And I think it, it, in, mm-hmm. you know, talking to some of my friends who are Indian American, right? Like myself or South Asian American, straddling the line between the two is sometimes difficult. And knowing where your identity lies is, am I Indian? Am I American? Is something that I still, you know, think about too. As you grew up and, you know, as you grew up in Miami and you went to college and and med school, did that identity or that working through that piece change at all? Yeah, it's an interesting question um, because my parents, I, I remember very clearly because they would say this to us all the time, they wanted to make sure that we had a strong sense of identity. And so it was a bar, about partly the religious and spiritual background uh, that they gave us. It was in part through music and culture and vis- frequent visits to India, but it was also through Chinmay Mission uh, classes. It was by giving us books to read about uh Swami Vivekananda, his biography about Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, about others whose um, stories deeply inspired me, you know, as a child and actually shaped how I thought about the world and about my purpose in it. Um, so that was a very important piece of it. And as I grew older and went to college, you know, I would say certain things did evolve. You know, for example, um, while I don't play the Murdangam as you know anymore. Uh, which it just feels saying that feels incredibly painful, and I can feel my music teacher ready to yell at me <laughs> for not practicing. Uh, and it followed shortly after by my mother yelling at me for not practicing. But my point is, even though I'm not playing anymore, I still retain a very deep appreciation for Carnatic music, you know. And I, I just happened to like put some music on in the background the other day, and it just brought back 
this beautiful Russian memories yes. and um, and the sense of gratitude, frankly, for having this rich tradition and heritage in my life. But there is one place where things did change significantly for me, and that was actually in college. Uh, so what happened happened to me is that when I was in middle school and high school, I was I was spending a fair amount of time sort of engaged in in my spiritual practice at the time, which involved about an hour of meditation and an hour each day, right? And I would do that in the mornings and the evenings after I came home from school. And a lot of that was instilled by my parents, you know, and but it wasn't driven by them. They didn't say, okay, every morning, evening, you've got to spend this amount of time. It's, it did a lot of that early on when I was five, six, seven years old. And by the time I was about seven or so, it became sort of part of, of my own sort of my own inclination, I would say. And it was what I was inspired to do. But the problem came, Samir, actually in my freshman year of college, where I had already toward the end of high school been struggling with my spiritual practice and feeling like it was speaking to me less and less. Mm -hmm. And it was really problematic for me because that was really the only way that I knew of uh, to connect to God was through that spiritual practice that that I had been doing for years. And suddenly when that ritual, when that meditation practice stopped working for me, it was like I was disconnected from God as well. And I remember like calling my um, my father on a Friday night, my freshman year, when I had actually just tried once again to, to do my sort of evening uh, meditation and just had utterly not felt like inspired or compelled in any way. And I was really somewhat distressed. So I called my dad and he was in the middle of a, a house party that they were having. But I remember he stepped away from that party and he said he could tell something was wrong uh, in my voice. And he said, well, what's what's wrong? And I said, I don't want to tell you right now. You're in the middle of the party. He said, the party doesn't matter. He said, everyone will be fine. He's like, this is what matters now. Just tell me what's on your mind. And I told him, I said, all of this stuff, which I know that you and mom are proud of me of doing and which has been a part of my identity. Like, I don't feel like it's connecting with me anymore. And I braced myself for a moment for the disappointment that I thought would come across the other end of the line but there was none of that he just said and i'll always remember this he just said then let it go he said if it's not serving you let it go he said your happiness your fulfillment is most important and he said you don't need to connect with god only through one means there are many ways to connect to god and you will find that even if you don't know what it is right now so it has been an evolution how i've connected with spiritual and religious traditions with culture, but that core identity uh, has always been an important part of who I am. That's amazing. And, and that quiet confidence that you have, that quiet demeanor of being able to look at things and think about how it goes deep in what I'm feeling and you know how my connection to God is, or, or is it something that's going on in my head? Is that something that was, have you, have you always had this presence to you or is it something that you developed over time? Because I have friends who, you know, who are preemptively calm all the time and, and, you know, and they get that essence from either spirituality or training or, you know, who they are as person. Is, is this personality that you've had of introspection always been with you or has it been something you developed over time through training? Huh. Well, that's an interesting question. It, it's <laughs> it's always a little bit tough to to assess your own personality, and you know sometimes friends would say, oh, "Vivek, you're calm," and my sister would hear that and she's like, "What are you talking about? He's not." <laughs> it's calm. all about perspective, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so it um, you know it's very much dependent, I think, it's on the person. But I do think, and you know, we play different roles to different people. Sure. So to my kids, I'm not calm and zen i'm the goofball actually in the family i'm the entertainer so i'm the one who will do the crazy things and the creative dances and the you know funny games and stuff like that to keep them laughing um but i do think that the practice of introspection and the value that i hold for centeredness and groundedness does date back actually to my early childhood and it was inspired by a couple of things. Um, it was inspired by the stories I read of saints that I came to deeply admire. It was also inspired by some people that I was blessed to meet as I was growing up, many of them spiritual teachers, mm-hmm. who inspired me with their sense of peace and their deep 
rootedness, the sense of being anchored that I, that I found I craved because as a child, I was, you know, like all children trying to figure out who I was and there are things I aspired to that I found I wasn't able to quite do. I'll give you a simple example. It's a very nerdy uh, Indian example, right? Um, I, like many other uh, Indian kids, and I'm proud to say this, participated in math competitions, mm -hmm. right? When I was You're in middle school and high school. <laughs> well, I was a, I was a aspiring math lead, I think, <laughs> but I, I never, I always had a hard, hard time though, cracking the top five in terms of individual awards when it came to math competitions. And that always bothered me. I felt like a failure because somehow I could never crack the top five. And <clears throat> on the one hand, like it felt bad to feel like a failure, but what felt bad was actually feeling bad as well, mm -hmm. was knowing that this stuff shouldn't really matter to me that much, that I shouldn't be as perturbed by it as I am, that it shouldn't shake my core, but feeling at times that it did. And I didn't like that. And so I would look at some of these saints, you know, that I would, and swamis who I would meet and some of these teachers that I would read about, uh, you know, people like um, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa in particular and his disciple Vivekananda. And I would just appreciate just how deeply centered they were. And I would say one day I want to be that centered. I want to be that anchored. Um, I want to know who I am and what I'm connected to more broadly in the universe, including the divine. And I want that to be my guide. I don't want to be drawn and perturbed and thrown off kilter by all of these other things that I know don't fundamentally matter, like the approval of other people, yeah. the achievement of external benchmarks, like awards and things like that. Now, does that mean that I'm never, ever affected by them? No, not, of course not. But, but I, I, those models, those role models for me came from childhood. And I was led to those role models by my parents who were my original teachers. Right, right. Original gurus. Yeah. Um, let's talk about achievement. And, you know, when you read your resume, you know, people probably just open their eyes really big and be like, how does someone like you accomplish so much? And with such sense of humility and gratitude, that's what I always was so impressed by you when, when reading and watching an interview is despite everything you did, you approach things with a sense of thoughtfulness and, and care and kindness and sincerity, which is not easy to do for people who have the resume or accomplish, accomplishments like yours. When you think about your role as U.S. Surgeon General, right, can you talk to us by some of the human moments of that when you, because when you hear about someone being a U.S. Surgeon General, like, oh, wow, what an amazing position. But tell us, can you humanize the role for us or things, any stories or things come to mind that make it come to life for our listeners? Well, Samir, I think what I found, have found is really important to remember is that regardless of what position someone holds or how wealthy or successful they are in other ways. At the end of the day, people are people are people first and foremost. Yeah. They're human beings who have the same insecurities, worries, aspirations uh, as others do. And this includes, you know, whether you're the president of the United States. And you know, in in my in my case, I remember before I started my role as, as Surgeon General, um, talking to my wife Alice about who I really wanted to be mm -hmm. uh, in this role. And what was very clear to both of us is that I just wanted to be me, a human being, Vivek Murthy, and that I was not the Surgeon General. I was the custodian of the office of the Surgeon General. It's a very important distinction. And I think all of us who have the privilege of serving in office, whether it's in Congress or in the White House or as a Surgeon General or in the Cabinet, we are stewards of an office that's much bigger than us. And I think that was important for me uh, to know going in and to remember throughout. But you know, the, the job itself was, um, was an incredible experience. Every day wasn't, you know, wasn't glory and wasn't, uh, you know, fascinating. And, uh, you know, the stuff that you, you know, would make the front page of the paper. And most of the days were actually a lot of hard work, hard work behind the scenes trying to get the bureaucracy mm -hmm. in the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to move on an initiative. 
uh, trying to uh, make sure that we had partnerships built, you know, for the next campaign that we were going to run, whether it was on opioids or e-cigarettes uh, or mental health. Um, it was a lot of time that I would spend in my office with teams uh, deliberating about what issue do we want to take on? How do we want to respond uh, to a concern that's been raised from another group? Um, and it was very human sort of considerations there, you know, like, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, sometimes you might think, well, at the highest levels of government and companies, everything must be well-tested algorithms and must have like the perfect uh, sort of formulas for how to respond to every situation. And it's not always like that. You know, life throws you curveballs and these jobs are no different. Um, I remember, for example, like one moment when, uh, you know, I remember we, we posted something on Twitter about e-cigarettes. And I remember we got a barrage of comments uh, from people who felt very passionately that e-cigarettes should not be restricted in any way, shape or form. And they should be freely available to anyone who wants them. And they were very angry at me for uh, for posting that I had concerns about children using e-cigarettes, right? And <clears throat> I remember at that time feeling like, gosh, such a huge reaction from all these people and a lot of very personal sort of attacks. Uh, and even though I knew, yes, in theory, yeah, this is not, they're not attacking me personally, even though they're saying very personal things uh, to me, but there's, you know, they're mad at the issue and I just happen to be the steward of this office, even though I knew that. It stung a little bit, yeah. you know, like in that moment. Like how do you not and, take uh, it personally? <laughs> well, right, right. And, you know, another uh, human um, sort of moment I'll, I'll share, and this is a, a painful one, but one that I grew from was actually right before I became Surgeon General during my confirmation process. So I had a, a lengthy and colorful confirmation process because I, uh, I had made some statements uh, about gun violence, saying specifically, I believe gun violence was a public health issue. And that rankled uh, a number of people in Congress, in particular, because it was an election year. It was 2014. And many of them had to run in states where uh, this was a very sensitive issue. And they were didn't want to have to take a vote on a nominee, uh, you know, where that was a you know point of concern. So I remember feeling on the one hand, why is this even an issue? Is there literally anybody in the public health and medical community that doesn't think that a large number of people dying for preventable reasons is a public health issue? Like, where is the controversy? Right, now? right. But it, it was obviously it was very clear. It wasn't about this statement. It was a pretext for uh, a much larger uh, campaign, actually, to try to derail the domination, to cause pain to the Obama administration, um, and in some people's cases, to um, try to win win some votes uh, during election year. Um but I remember that was a very difficult year for me, Samir, because uh, I still remember the day the news broke that the National Rifle Association had officially come out to oppose my nomination. And they had said, and they announced this on the day of my committee vote. So to, when you are nominated, you're, you have a hearing before your committee. The committee then votes. And if they vote you forward, then you go to a vote before the full Senate. And in my case, on the day of my committee vote, the NRA strategically chose that day to come out and say, not only are we opposing this vote, but we will score it, which is the highest level of significance you can give uh, to a vote if you're the NRA. That means we will take your vote on this uh, nominee and we will use it to influence the grade that we give you, the A through F grade, um, that will ultimately determine whether we support you or run ads against you in your next election. And so that automatically sent almost 12 Democrats who had been in the yes column immediately sent them to the no or unsure column, oh, like literally overnight. So if you wonder, do interest groups really have an influence over how politicians vote? The answer is yes, they absolutely do. And we even had a couple of Republicans who we thought would be after the hearing were very open and, and supportive. And we thought, you know, we would have their votes too, but they automatically went to the no column because they didn't want to be seen as opposing the National Rifle Association. And I remember when that news broke, the New York Times ran a story that day saying the White House will be withdrawing uh, the nomination, you know, for the, for the Surgeon General nominee, Vivek Murthy. And now they had not told me this. And I was reading this. I was like, oh, my God, this all happened within like 24 hours. Yeah. I was like, 
what is going on here? And I was bizarrely at this orientation session for senior appointees and pro to prepare them for starting their term terms. And I was like, I can't even pay attention yeah. to this. So yeah. this was in the, uh, it, you know, Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is part of the White House complex. So I just left that meeting and I walked across the way uh, to another part of the White House where the, pre the president's senior advisors who I was working with, uh, where they were sitting. And I just said to them, I said, can we just talk? you know, about what's going on here. And my, my, my now wife, Alice came to that meeting as well. Alice, by the way, was always very important in these meetings. She was, she was smart. She was strategic. She was always good with people. She understood groups uh, very well. She had spent a lot of time doing grassroots organizing. So they actually primarily cared if she showed up, if I showed up, it was like a bonus. Okay. We have the bakes here, but really we need Alice here to figure out these things. Uh, so Alice and I show up there and, um, and we said, we said to them, or I said to them, I said, if you, I know the president has other issues he needs to spend political capital on. If you tell me that you need me to to step down and withdraw, I said, just tell me that. I was like, I'll do that uh, if, if the president needs me to. Um, and they looked at me and they just said, Vivek, if you want to, if you need to, we, we would understand, but we really hope you don't because this is important to him. It's important to us. This is an issue of principle. Yes. Um, and we, we want to see this through. Um, but the rest of that year, this was March, they knew that they wouldn't be able to get a vote on the nomination until after the November election. And so for those, you know, seven months plus, and it was ultimately December when they got the vote, those nine months were very painful, Samir. I had to ask myself all kinds of questions about, is this, number one, is this going to work out? And most people gave it about a two to 3% chance of actually happening, right? Like, am I wasting my time here? Um, and I felt this weird sense of shame some year, mm -hmm. even though I actually didn't do anything wrong. And in fact, I, I was asked many times, would you take that tweet back? And I said, absolutely not. You know, I spoke the truth and I would do it again. And I, to my mind, there's no question about that. But despite that, there was this strange sense of shame. And I became really withdrawn. Like I really stopped talking to many people. I became more isolated. And um, it was an ex extremely, extremely difficult year and people on the outside were like oh he's you know he has this great life he's been nominated for this amazing post i'm sure everything's hunky-dory but it wasn't on the inside wow it was actually really 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 difficult and so you know th the time there was there were a lot of ups and downs like that there were uh, on the whole it was one of the greatest privileges i've had in my life and the most importantly because i had this opportunity samir to meet with and engage with people all over the country to sit with families in their living rooms and hear about their lives, to uh, hear from people in town halls uh, and in community gatherings. I had the opportunity to understand what people are actually like, what their lives are like all over the country. And even though I have fallen, you know, I have so much gratitude for the United States of America for being my home and the place that received my family when we came over here, even though I have tremendous uh, love for our countries and the ideals for which it stands, I, it was, you know, it, it was experience of falling in love with the country all over again. It's like getting to know that extended family that you love in theory, right. but have never met. Yeah. And then you finally meet them and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. This family is real, tangible, yeah. and I love it even more. That's amazing. And, and thank you for sharing that story because we live in an age where people highlight the positives, the successes, the Instagram lives, right? The LinkedIn, the LinkedIn accolades. But to hear someone like you share poignantly the tough struggles you had for a year, I didn't know that. And I'm sure a lot of people listening didn't know that. And that's amazing to hear. And, and amazing how you came across the other side, you know, better you know, and had time to reflect for those nine months, even how painful it was, you were able to get through that and, you know, do something amazing. That That is incredible to me. Um, well, thank you, Samir. I appreciate that. Hey, can I, um, can I tell you or show you one, one, one thing, one person? So I'm just going to pull you in. Mama, this is my mom. Hi. Hi. Namaste. <laughs> Good. Namaste. Good to meet Ma, you. This is Samir. And uh -huh. I was just telling Samir all about the, he was asking about my background and I was telling him about the spiritual teachings and traditions that you and dad taught me and the introduction to Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and Vivekananda. So oh, yeah. this is, this is the mom who gave, uh, <laughs> Wonderful gave to me meet all you. of that. So. <laughs> all right. Thank you. All right. See. 
we got a special Thanks, appearance here. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. Um, sure. I want to talk to you about things that you did as time master in general that you're just so proud of it that you just you know when people when you think about your time fondly, what things come to mind that you say was a highlight for you that you just feel really really good about. Mm. It's a great question. Um, well, I mean, with the caveat that there were many, many things I could have done better and would do differently in retrospect, um, there were some things I, I was very grateful for that I felt good about when I left. One of them was the family that we were able to create in the office of the Surgeon General. Um, you know, from the beginning, I wanted our team to be a place where people could come and feel valued, could feel seen, could be appreciated not just for what they could do, but also for who they were. And, you know, while it was tough at times and we weren't always perfect, I feel in many ways we were able to create uh, that kind of family for many people. And and that's something I feel very grateful for. And many of the people I worked with, I'm still in very close touch with and to this day. You know, another thing that, that stuck out to me that, um, you know, always remember is this is a very, some of these are very, very simple things. But I wrote this letter uh, to 2.3 million healthcare practitioners around the country, doctors and nurse practitioners, uh, dentists and physician uh, assistants, all people who prescribe medications and who had the ability to prescribe opioid medications. And I wrote this personal letter to them because I wanted to have a direct communication with them as I invited them and urged them to join a larger movement that we were building to tackle the opiate epidemic. And you might think, gosh, well, if you send a letter like that, you just write it, you get the addresses and you send it. But this was government. It was not that simple. (laughs) (laughs) And it it took us, gosh, probably from the time I came up with that idea, gosh, almost a year to actually get this out the door. Everybody wanted to edit it. It took probably... I think 73 versions or 74 versions uh, of this letter. Um, And by the end, and because people knew that it would have visibility, it was not something that had been done before, this kind of personal um, communication, you know, to, to, you know, by the Surgeon General to other clinicians. And uh, everyone wanted either to have their message in it or they wanted to constrain it in some way because they were worried about fallout or overpromising or something or the other. So finally, I just remember looking at the final product after 73 revisions and saying, I don't even recognize this letter. Like, I don't even know what half this letter yeah, means because right. it's so full of jargon. Right. So I just told my team, I said, I'm going back home and I'm going to revise this letter. So I largely put aside those revisions and I just wrote the letter as I would speak to a colleague. And that's the letter we mailed. And I'm sure it upset some people, but to me, what was really important was that it was an authentic yes. communication, that it was personal, that it was real, it was that you. it acknowledged what was hard. Yeah. And and that it wasn't just another letter from government. So I, I look back on that and I still to this day get stories from people who said, I got your letter. Uh, and then I, I put it up, you know, in the wall in our in our doctor's conference room, or I got that letter and it helped me rethink how I practice or it made me get some additional training uh, in opiate prescribing. And, and so I, I do feel good about that. There's a couple of last things I'll share with you. You know, one is in 2016, we issued a report on alcohol, drugs, and health. And it was the first time that the office of the Surgeon General had issued a report on substance use disorders and addiction. But to me, it was so important, not only because our country was in the midst of an addiction crisis, but also because there was so much stigma around addiction, so many families that were struggling with it, but felt that it was a source of shame that they couldn't talk about it. And so even though it was happening to so many people, everyone felt alone. They felt like I'm the only one. And this is true in the South Asian community as well, where the stigma around mental illness and, and substance use disorders is even higher uh, than it is in the general population. And it was painful to see the aunties and uncles that I grew up with, to see the brothers and sisters in the Indian community that I grew up with, to see so many of them struggle actually with substance use disorders. And in some cases to see them pass away as a result of them. So to me, putting that report out was not only about getting scientific information about, it was about 
pulling back the curtain on a deeper source of pain that so many of us experienced. It was about reducing the stigma around a condition that was not the result of being flawed in your character or being fundamentally broken, but was a condition many of us would be susceptible to in the right circumstances. And so I look back on that and feel good. Um, the last thing I'll just share is actually about the topic of emotional well-being, because that was a topic, our emotional health and well-being, that became increasingly clear to me was important uh, in our overall health. And it seems almost obvious to say it, but I ask you, where in medical school are we being taught about how to think about and address the emotional health of our patients? Um, where in our own general education are all of us being taught about how to manage that in our own lives? Right. Meanwhile, the science continues to pile up, showing us that our emotional well-being is deeply connected to our physical health. And this is so clearly manifested in the experience of loneliness and social disconnection, which it turns out a massive number of people you know, experience in the modern world, particularly in the United States, where more than a fifth of the population uh, of adults struggle with loneliness. And those are the conservative numbers. Yeah. Many other studies put that number closer to 50%. But to be able to shine a light on those issues, to me, was an extraordinary privilege. And, you know, it was amazing to see the, you know, how people would react. Because when, especially talking about loneliness, I would see this visceral recognition in people's eyes. They knew exactly what I was talking about. It wasn't cognitive recognition. Right. It wasn't a cerebral process. This was the kind of recognition that said, I felt this before or people I know and love are going through this right now. And so part of the work I've continued after office has been in that area of emotional well-being and loneliness and connection, because I've come to realize not only is it extraordinarily common, not only does it have profound effects on our health, raising our risk for depression and anxiety, but also heart disease and premature death, but it also impacts our performance in school, in the workplace, and even the political polarization that we're dealing with today. Yes. And I cannot think of a more relevant topic in this environment right now, right? We just talked about it before we got on the recording is the sense of loneliness, hopelessness, um, emotional reservoir draining with this pandemic is tough for so many people, me included, where I have really bad days and, and, uh, days where I wish I could take back and, you know, all these things run through my head. Um, what advice or what would you suggest for someone who is dealing with that acutely right now in this COVID-19 crisis? So the first thing I would say, Samir, is that if you are someone who is struggling with loneliness before this pandemic, or if you find that you're struggling with loneliness during uh, COVID-19, first know that you're not alone. And there are so many people who are struggling with loneliness. And it also is not evidence that you're broken because loneliness is a very human experience. Yeah. It's the experience of, uh, and the signal rather, that our body sends us when we're, we're missing something that we desperately need for survival. And that's human connection. And in that way, it's no different than hunger or thirst. So that's a first, uh, first step. The second step is to realize that there are, in fact, small but powerful things we can do to strengthen our connection, even despite the physical separation that we're having to observe in the time of this pandemic. Yeah. For example, you know, it turns out if we just made it a point to spend 10 to 15 minutes a day connecting with people we care about, calling them on the phone, video conferencing with them, um, seeing them in person, you know, with appropriate safety precautions and distancing, right. that that 10 or 15 minutes can be extraordinarily powerful and can serve as a lifeline uh, to, to the outside world. The second thing to, to remember is that, or the second step we can take is also to focus on the quality of our time with one another. Sometimes it's actually the quality that counts. And five minutes of conversation where somebody is listening to you deeply, where they're fully present, where you're able to share openly with them, can be more valuable than 30 minutes of distracted conversation when you're catching up on the phone, but you're also checking Instagram and looking at the news and checking out the basketball scores and, uh, and Googling a question that just came into your head, which is, th these are things that we all do. I have done them. I 
still do them sometimes, even though I push myself not to. But my point is that devices are, are accessible. The programs that we use, especially social media, they are designed to draw us in. So it's actually very easy to end up multitasking when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody. But it comes at a, at a deep cost that we don't observe at the time, but that actually shows up later. Um, the third thing we can do is actually to search each other out, uh, looking for opportunities to serve, right? And so it's one of the great and most important realizations I came to in the writing of this book uh, on loneliness and social connection was that service is an antidote to loneliness, yep. one of the most powerful ones, in fact. And in this time of COVID-19, we may not be able to go volunteer at a soup kitchen in our community, but make me no mistake, there are people who are struggling and who could use our help. That could be a neighbor who's older and scared to go to the grocery store and could use some help getting uh, fruits and vegetables and food. That could be a friend who was struggling with depression or anxiety or loneliness before the pandemic, and now this has worsened, and just reaching out to them to say, hey, I was thinking of you, I wanna know how you're doing, could be powerful. You know, it could be having food delivered to a coworker or a classmate who's struggling. It could be offering just to virtually babysit for 10 minutes for a friend who's got kids and is struggling to telework while homes and homeschool at the same time. There are many ways in which we can serve one another. And all of these are very simple, 15 minutes a day, spending time calling someone, giving someone the benefit and the gift of your full attention, um, looking for small ways to help people. But what they do is they remind us of our deeper connection to one another. They feel good in the moment. And that good feeling actually often lasts for hours, if not days, uh, going forward. And the reason, Samir, that those small actions have such a powerful effect is because we are hardwired to connect with one another because we've evolved over thousands of years to be social beings who have recognized that we are safer when we are in larger numbers, that we are better off when we're together. That is amazing. And I love, love, love those tips because um, you realize the time commitment you need is not as much as your brain thinks you need, right? Like, People are swamped with so much work and commitment and priorities and errands. But you realize that I just need five to 15 minutes a day to do these three things. And it can have a massive, enormous benefit to my life. And it's not something that's, you know, you actively think about that you need to do. So that's amazing. And for people listening, Dr. Murthy wrote a book about this together and I'll link it in, in our, in our post so you can read about it and hear more more what he has to say. So thank you for, for sharing that. One question I have for you. Samir, one, go ahead. One quick, I'll just say in reaction to what you said is, um, um, which is very poignant. You're right that we often think we need a lot more time to connect with people than we do to have a positive interaction. And for this reason, what many of us do is we, when we think about, we think about a friend we haven't talked to in a long time, we say, gosh, I'm probably going to need an hour to catch up yes. with that friend because it's been so long. I only have 10 minutes right now. Let me just wait till I have an hour. And then we wait and then we wait and then that hour never comes and then a year has gone by and we're out of touch. Right. And one of the things I started doing with uh, a few friends is it, two things. One is just remembering that the short call has tremendous impact. That even if I have five or 10 minutes, just calling a friend and saying, hey, um, and just have a few minutes. But I was thinking of you. I just wanted to hear your voice, see how you're doing. And the conversation that you have in just those few minutes, even if it's not a full all out conversation, it can, it can be really powerful can warm your heart. It can remind you uh, of the connection that you had. But the second thing I've been trying to do much more so is to pick up the phone when people call. Now, this seems like a very basic thing, but, you know, in 2020, like more often than not, we don't pick up, right? We let it go to voicemail and then we text people, right? Or wait to see if they text us, right? And then we figure that that's fine, right? I've done that too plenty of times. But here's what I realized is the amount of time that I spend texting them afterwards, say, hey, I can't talk right now, or wait for them to text, and then texting them back, et cetera, is actually usually greater than the 10 seconds or 15 seconds it would take to pick up the phone and say, hey, great to hear from you. Is it okay if I call you back later? I'm just in the middle of this thing. And the reason that the latter is so powerful, the reason picking up the phone is so powerful is because we hear someone else's voice, that we actually can feel their presence, even if it's for a few seconds, 
And because we are hardwired to connect, our body soaks that up like a sponge soaks up water. And it means a lot. It feels better. And that's why if you're going to leave someone a message, even though this seems so 21st, so so 20th century, leaving them a voicemail is actually a really nice idea because they can, again, hear your voice as opposed to just reading uh, text on a screen. And so the closer that we can get to in-person human interaction, whether that's hearing someone's voice on the phone or in voicemail or seeing them, even if it's virtually, these help to increase the quality of those interactions and remind us that even a few seconds or a few minutes can make a big difference in how connected we feel. Yes. I, I can't agree with that more. And even in my life, you know, you get so used to connecting over text or IM or email and you get, sometimes I get anxiety when people call me. I'm like, Oh, I don't have time right now. I'm busy with this, but you're so right where I can just pick up the phone and say, Hey, working on this, glad to hear from you. Hope you're doing well. We'll talk soon. And I, in my head, will think that's better than what I'm doing right now of just letting it go to voicemail, texting later, trying to coordinate a time to talk days, weeks later, never happens. And the text sometimes just doesn't cut it in terms of that connection that we're all trying to go. I I, I really, really like that. Mm. Um, One thing I want to ask you is, you know, people are down right now with everything going on. What makes you hopeful about next year or the, the back half of this year? What can people look forward to, to maybe a light at the end of the tunnel as they are trying to get through whatever they're going through right now? Well, Samir, this pandemic has been incredibly difficult for so many of us. Uh, you know, there are people who have been sick themselves, who have lost loved ones. But even if you haven't been directly impacted in that way, uh, this pandemic has created a lot of economic insecurity for people. Mm-hmm. It's cut people off from the people they love. It's made kids miss school. Uh, it's turned people's lives upside down in, in a million ways. And that's stressful. And that stress may manifest differently in each of our lives. It may, in some of our cases, make it harder for us to sleep. For other people, it may shorten their focus and make it harder to pay attention during work calls. For other people, it may make them more, ir- may make them more irritable. Uh, and easier to uh, to anger. And what I want to tell people, first of all, is to be gentle with yourselves during this time. You know, it's easy to condemn and judge ourselves and say, gosh, why can't we just pay attention during these seven hours of Zoom calls? Isn't it easier than having to go all the way to work and come back? Well, no, it not only is it not necessarily easier, but it's happening at a time of extraordinary stress in our lives. And only in retrospect will we fully appreciate just how much we're dealing with in this moment. The second thing I would remember is that this is temporary, that this will be over in the sense that there will come a time where we have an effective vaccine and maybe even an effective therapy uh, that may help, if not cure or eradicate the illness, at least reduce the severity of the illness. And while we don't know exactly when that will come, and while it likely will be, uh, well into 2021, until we have a vaccine that has been widely distributed uh, to the population, uh, that time will come. And so this is temporary. And the question, what gives me hope is actually in looking at how so many people are, in fact, responding in this moment, how they're stepping up for each other, how they're reaching out to help neighbors and friends, how they're recognizing that at a time where we may not have a vaccine or medication, that kindness and love can also be powerful methods of healing that in fact are the sources of healing that we need. And so that actually gives me extraordinary hope. And I think the final thing I would say here is we've got to ask ourselves what we want to come back to after this pandemic is over. Do we want to go back to the life that we led before COVID-19 or is there a different and maybe better way that we want to live based on what we've learned during this pandemic. I think for many of us, the recognition that our relationships truly matter and that people need to be more at the center of our lives 
uh, is increasingly clear, yeah. you know, as we deal with the fallout of, of this pandemic. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, how do we build a life uh, post-pandemic that is, in fact, more centered around people, that more reflects the priorities that we have in our hearts, that tell us that our relationships with our parents, our children, our spouses, and our friends truly are the most important things to us and the forces that we want to build our life around, that we want to put our relationships at the center and build around that, not necessarily put work at the center Correct. and fit in relationships uh, where they can and where they're convenient. And that notion of reevaluating priorities and what is important to you is so powerful. And it's something that I have done myself of like, what actually matters to me? Like, what is the rank of my things? Like before the pandemic, I would put work pretty high up there. You know, South Asians are usually very ambitious and, you know, make sh making that as a priority and making that their lives. But then when you, when this pandemic happened, I realized like, what makes me happy, fulfilled, um, you know, I, this, a sense of calm and, and, and excited to wake up every day. And it goes in terms of, you know, making sure my health is number one, family and friends number two, and then work is probably number three. And it took a pandemic of this size and severity for me to think through that and evaluate that. So for me, that was something that I, ha I had to go through and do what you said. It reevaluated what I'm grateful for and what's fortunate to me. Um, and I will take that moving forward, no matter what happens in the next year. And I think that was a positive change, at least in my life. And, you know, something that I agree with you from for what you're saying. Mm, I'm so glad to hear that you've had that realization that you're already designing a life that's going to be more connected right. uh, than what you had pre-pandemic. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, I know you you spent a lot of time and a passion writing this book, what do you think is next for you? Can you give us a peek under the hood of things that you're excited to work on and or what's what's next um, that you want to tackle? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm laughing not because i'm I'm being coy, but because I, I'm just reflecting on the fact that um, I don't know, and that uh, like many many people, I'm still trying to figure out sure. like what I want to be and what I want to do. Sure. And what I've come to, you, you know, what I've come to realize, Samir, over time is that um, for me, there isn't going to be one path sure. that I follow. I, I came to this realization probably after sometime during residency training when I was really struggling to figure out what I wanted to do. Everybody was going off and doing a subspecialty fellowship in cardiology or infectious disease, or they were going out into a full-time job and joining a medical practice. And I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I had this feeling that I wanted to, uh, to go in a different path and do medicine part-time and potentially build a technology company or do something, uh, related to social media, technology and medicine, but I didn't quite know what. Um, and so what I found is that after each phase of my, of my life where I do something, it's important for me to take some time sure. and then to reflect sure. and to reevaluate sure. and to ask the question, what feels true? And after leaving office, the thing that has felt most true was actually working on this book on loneliness and social connection. Yeah. And the reason that felt most true, Samir, is when I thought about all of the issues I had worked on while I was Surgeon General, violence in communities, addiction, depression, anxiety, what stood out to me as the common thread that tied so many of them, to them together was in fact the thread of loneliness, which was a feature of so many of their experiences, but which also stood out to me as part of the solution. That if we truly wanted to build a world in which people struggle less with addiction, where they had more effective pathways of staying in recovery, that we needed to build community, that we need to revitalize our connections with each other. And so that has felt most true. And you know, while I've dabbled in a bunch of things since leaving office, you know, from continuing to work on public health issues with organizations I care about, uh, to serving on uh, some boards and working on causes also that I care about to advising some companies on issues like COVID-19. While I've done all of that, I find myself continuing to come back to this question around human connection mm -hmm. and how do we strengthen 
our connections with one another? How do we accelerate a more global conversation on where people and relationships fall in our priority list? How do we ensure that putting people first and that social connection is informing how we design not just our own lives, but our workplaces, our schools, our governments, and our neighborhoods? And so this to me feels like the area that I want to focus on. And it's very personal, Samir, in a lot of ways, because as a child, you know, I certainly struggled a lot with loneliness and did many times during my time as an adult, including when I was Surgeon General and particularly in the years after. But it's also personal because of my children. My son, Dejus, is almost four. My daughter, Shanti, is two and a half. And, you know, I love them fiercely and want to protect them all the time. But I know that I can't. I know that there's going to be a time when they go off to school and how well they do will in part rely on how people treat them in school. As they get older and they become adults themselves, my question is, when they stumble, will there be somebody to help lift them up? When they make a mistake, will somebody give them the benefit of the doubt? Um, Will the world receive them with open arms and be kind and nurturing? Or will it be cold and hostile and unfeeling? And which path we go down, what kind of world my children and all of our children inherit will ultimately depend on what values we seek to hold up and what values we use to inform the decisions we make, the institutions we design. And I want those values to center around human connection and around the forces that drive human connection, which are love, kindness, compassion, and generosity. That's a world I want for my kids. That's a cause that I want to be working on from here uh, until my last days. That is phenomenal. Wow. I, I am almost at a loss of words because that is so um, personal to you, but helpful to the huge amounts of society. And when I found if you can scratch your own itch, if you do something that is deeply passionate about and you're personal to your life and doing something that you're interested in, it just makes the work go farther and you put more of yourself into the work, which will ultimately have a better result, whatever you want that to be. So that is amazing. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. Um, in, our, in our last part of our interview, Dr. Murthy, I'd love to go through our rapid fire questions. And these are questions we've asked a whole bunch of our interviewees and got some really amazing responses. So I'm excited to hear <laughs> what you think. So for the first question is, is there an item or service that you've bought recently that has dramatically improved your life? Ah, Lincoln Logs, which we bought for our kids, and they like absolutely love them. They entertain them, which gives us some time and gives us a fun activity to do together. So Lincoln Logs. I love it. And are you, so you, your family's not a Lego family? Well, we do love Legos, but we left our Legos in Washington, D.C., and we've been in Miami with my family for the last four and a half months. Got it. So. Got, it. <laughs> Got it. Lincoln Logs. Love it. Okay, next question is, when you think of a South Asian person that you look up to, it can be in your field, outside your field, who would you say comes to mind and why? That would be Swami Vivekananda. And the reason is because up until I really dug into his teachings and his biography, I actually wanted to become a monk myself. I wanted to be a sannyasi. And when I read his book, even though he himself uh, you know, had taken that the sannyasi's vow. Um, what he taught was a very active, engaged way of exercising one's spirituality, yes. a way that was engaged in, in the world. He taught about the notion of spirituality through service, and that's what inspired me to engage with the world uh, as part of my own dharma. That's amazing. Yeah, and um, I think you realize that, you know, when I was studying Hinduism through Chimai Mission and, and stuff is everyone has a different interpretation of, you know, the, the learnings and the, how they apply it to their lives. And it, every, thing, different things speak to different people. So 
you know, Swami Vivekananda, someone we studied, Swami Chinmayananda, you know, all these people have different teachings and get that amalgamation of what is useful to you and then discard things that may not be useful is a deeply personal experience that a lot of people go through. And um, that's so cool that you did it yourself, that spirituality through service and how that, you know, was reflected in all parts of your life. That's really cool. Cool. Um, next question is, what is a movie or book that has had the most impact on you? Uh, the book would be Conversations with God, uh, which is a book written by Neil Donald Walsh and one that had a profound impact on me when I was a first-year medical student struggling through uh, a four-year-long spiritual crisis. Uh, the movie would be Miracle, the movie made about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, uh, which is a story of true inspiration. It's uh, it's a true story itself. Um, but there is a particular part of that movie, the end, uh, when they play their final game against the uh, USSR, um, which is just filled with inspiration. It reminds me of how with our hearts and with our effort, we can create extraordinary things, especially when we do it together. And I listened to the clip of the end of that movie so many times during that nine months uh, where I was waiting to go through confirmation during those dark moments where I wasn't sure it would work out. I would often turn to that segment to feel inspired and to be reminded of what human beings are capable of. I love that. I want to know, this is a, a question that, you know, came from what you said about the nine months of loneliness, the nine months of unsuredness of what's going to happen, you know, you closing on yourself. What was the moment like when you found out, yes, I am going to be U.S. Surgeon General, I am confirmed. What was going through your head? I mean, it was an incredible moment. I was with my mother and my father. I went with Alice. It was a moment of just profound gratitude yeah. is the most, like, this most clear feeling that comes to, my, comes to mind. I was just felt so deeply thankful for them, for all the people who made that possible, the opportunity to serve to, for, to God for sustaining me through this challenging process. It was just real profound gratitude. That's awesome. Yeah. That must have been such a release for you. What a moment. It was. Yeah, it was. Cool. Samir, I should just warn you. I unfortunately have a call in two minutes. I can do the last two questions, but I may have to sure, run quickly. Sure, no problem. Um, Sorry. I would love yeah. to know, this is, could be our last question, is what advice would you give to an up-and-coming South Asian person who's interested in public service or mm. you know, someone who is growing up who wants to be U.S. Surgeon General at some point? What would you advice <laughs> would you give them? So three quick pieces of advice. One is to take risks because the risks we often regret most are the ones we don't take and we often overestimate how much risk there is in our decisions i don't mean take risks with your health and safety but i mean when we talk about our career trying a job that may seem a little risky taking time off to explore something take those risks the second thing is to think short term and not long term and we so often think about three year five year ten year plans planning everything now so that we'll be set up in the future to do what we really want to do. But I have found increasingly that the most important question is not what do I want to do in five years? It's what would be most inspiring and meaningful for me to do next and focus on that. And when you do that, that inspiration often opens up new doors for you. And the last uh, piece of advice I would have is to remember your anchors. Your anchors are the people in your life who know you often even better than yourselves. The people who can remind you of who you are in those dark, dark moments of despair when we all forget. You've got to keep those anchors close. Um, don't just spend time with them when it's convenient, but remember that they're the people that you need uh, and who need you uh, throughout. I mean, my hope, Samir, is that whether you're a young South Asian who's finding your way, whether you're somebody who's older, uh, who's reflecting on your life, uh, whoever you are, that the, all more of us will take it to heart that what we are called to do in this moment as a community, as a world, is to build a people-centered life. That, when I think about this whole journey I've been on around human connection, the journey of writing this book, 
If I had to boil it down to a simple credo, it would be three simple words. Put people first. Those three words. And so as we think about our own lives, about how we want to spend time, how we want to make decisions about where we live, how we want to make decisions about what jobs we take, let's think about how we would put people first in each of those decisions. And if we do so, then I believe we can build a really rich life powered by human connection that will leave us more resilient, stronger, and certainly more fulfilled uh, than ever. Wow. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. This has been one of the best interviews I've ever done, and I appreciate your candor and your authenticity and just the the way you've talked through things. It almost felt like a therapy session for, for, for all of us listening. <laughs> so I appreciate you everything. Well, it was such a joy to speak with you, Samir. Thank you for everything you're doing and for sharing these kinds of conversations um, with the world and for giving me the chance to have this conversation with you. Wonderful. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend and say hello to your family again. And thank you. Thanks so much. You too. Bye. Bye, Samir. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.